Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, so I've completely turned my health around. And this show is not only a document of my progress through ketosis, but Richard's sexy phlegm from the flu. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little Easter egg for people who actually listen to this. Right. (laughs) And Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Oh, no way, man. (laughs) We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook and we love to eat. In every episode, Mm -hmm. we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. No, it cannot. All right. So let's start podcast number 78, The History of Dietary Guidelines with Gary Fetkin. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Uh, the only apology I have is I mispronounced uh, the county that San Antonio is in. Yeah. Uh, it's actually pronounced Bayar County, not Bexar County, so the X is silent. So right. My apologies. And neither of us had ever heard the name of that county before, so we didn't do our no. research and, and look it up like good citizens. We're sorry. Yeah. Well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Richard? Sure. It's uh, 20 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. Uh, protein is one to one and a half grams per kilogram of lean body mass, and you get all of your energy from fat. Yeah, fat either on your plate or on your body. Yeah, that Krispy Kreme that we ate a decade ago. Exactly. Hey, uh, how was your week besides the fact that you got this horrible cold? I got the sexy phlegm again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I picked up a flu coming back on the plane. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, well, it's on my lungs. I tried to go for a bike ride the other day and I had to bail halfway through. Uh, and, uh, all my cycling friends have been saying you're crazy for cycling when you have yeah. flu. So, uh, so I'm going to bail on that for a bit. I'm getting ready to go to Threadbow, which is a low carb conference at a ski resort which yep. is about uh, three hours south of where I live currently. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's going to be fun. I'm going to get to meet uh, Dr. Peter Bruckner, the, yep. uh, the team doctor of the Australian cricket team, mm-hmm. um, and a couple of other people. And we'll do some – I'll hope to do some recording then of some podcasts. Uh, and it, otherwise, I've just been um, trying to get over my flu. And Jules and I are both now fasting every Monday and Tuesday. So um, oh, great. I'm in day two of a fast, which is awesome. You must feel much better. And uh, I bet you're eating a lot of bone broth while you're not fasting, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I made a whole bunch of uh, smoked pork hock uh, broth, which yeah. is uh, delicious. Yeah. Nice. So, how was your week, Carl? Well, my week was pretty good. Uh, it was a musical weekend, anyway. 
the uh, band played downtown and we had a really good time and at daddy jacks yeah daddy jacks and i got some videos edited and put up on the uh youtube channel and we're slowly getting the videos from keto fest up on our youtube channel which is at youtube.2keto.com and uh, just uh, cooking class videos are starting to come in now so keep watching that and you'll see what we've been doing also we launched our patreon uh channel last week yeah and uh, that's at patreon.2keto.com thank you if you have donated and uh, if you haven't maybe you might wanna i don't know (laughs) if you feel like it (laughs) thank you to everybody who has yeah very grateful yep yeah well this is the point in the show where we pick a winner of some swag from our Two Keto Dudes fan club, which you can join right. at fanclub.2keto.com. And every show, we like to give away some stuff. Right now, we're giving away Two Keto Dudes coffee mugs. And today's yeah. winner is Bryce Palmer. Well done, Bryce. <laughs> yeah. And just by uh, going to fanclub.2keto.com and signing up for the fan club, uh, Bryce just won a mug with our mugs on it. Hey, you can look at us while you drink your coffee. (laughs) Or whatever else you drink. We don't care. And if you want one of those mugs, but you can't afford to wait until you win the competition, you can always go to gear.2keto.com. Absolutely. Where they're available for sale. Along with t-shirts and other yucky stuff. All right. Now it's time for us to read some... Halfway through that, my voice said, no, we're not going to get to the end of this word. (laughs) Ah, It doesn't matter. All right, I'm going to go first. This is a message left in our ketogenic forums a couple days ago by Gabe, considering giving up all sweeteners temporarily. And he says, I got an email from a world-renowned, exceptionally talented biochemist who I am acquainted with, answering a couple of questions I had about low-carb, high, or healthy fat, whichever you like to say. Mm. One of the points he made was that sweeteners of all kinds both natural and unnatural, caloric, non-caloric, trigger insulin release from the pancreas. They are, in his words, quote, an addiction. Six weeks, he says, of avoiding any and everything sweet eliminates the cravings. I respect this guy so much that I'm considering it, even though I have a bunch of recipes I want to make with pure stevia, erythritol, and yacon or yacon syrup, Y-A-C-O-N. I've never even heard of that one. Yacon? I've heard of that one. Yep. It's a Peruvian ground apple or something. But oh, yeah. okay. And then he says, anyone else tried going off all sweet things? What is your experience with it? And there were some really great uh, answers like this. I did it for a week when I did Atkins induction, didn't use their products and didn't make anything with sweeteners. I do not, however, have a sweet tooth, so I really didn't have much sugar withdrawal. I have stevia, truvia, erythritol in the house, and I make my own chocolates, mostly for me, and cheesecake muffins. Uh, with them. I use berries and whipped cream for dessert when I need a little extra something at the end of a meal. The other stuff is maybe once a week. I can really go days without any of it. So uh, another one said, strangely, I have more sweet things now than I did before keto because the sweeteners I use don't give me the horrible health issues sugar did. Right. I have avoided sugar for many years before keto. I could very easily live without sweet things again as I never get cravings at all, never really had a sweet tooth, didn't even like chocolate as a kid. So, I think this is reflective of the individuality that we see in our community, which is some people have sugar addictions and sweet addictions that are so strong that um, even things that are sweet but not uh, insulinogenic 
necessarily will cause the same response or, or a moderate response, and they need to go cold turkey. Other people, such as myself, I rarely ever have anything sweet, and every once in a while I have a little bit of uh, bittersweet chocolate, you know, 70% chocolate or something, but that's it. I don't, I don't use any of that stuff anymore. So, right. uh, you know, who knows? I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's kind of irresponsible to, to lump all sweeteners into the same basket and say they're all insulinogenic. There's actually something called the cephalic phase of gastric secretion, which occurs even before food enters the stomach. Um, and it, you know, it can be caused from uh, just the sight or smell or even the thought of a sweet food. Wow. And basically, uh, it's, it's the brain via the vagus nerve telling the pancreas, get ready because we think on the balance of all evidence that there is something coming in that you're going to need to respond to. So we make insulin even when we don't need to. Um, and uh, the stomach will also, as soon as the stomach gets something in it, um, as soon as the stomach is stretched slightly, uh, that will trigger the, the pancreas to make insulin as well. So there's a lot of things that do it. And uh, this renowned biochemist is correct that, you know, that sweet foods do have a cephalic response. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so so apparently he's right. Um, like I say, it will depend on the person, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you've been doing it, keto a long time or you've been fasting, you might be okay with uh, some berries once in a while or some chocolate. But but obviously, if it brings out the Tony Tiger in you, uh, yeah. you're going to want to limit them more. If you turn into the cookie monster, it's probably a good idea to try cutting that out. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. All right. What do you got, Richard? So I've got one. Uh, this one actually came as an email, which is unusual for us. Um, and this email came to us from Dwayne. And he said, mm. uh, thank you for your time, gentlemen. I seem to have put myself in a bind. I really mm. need to stay under 170 pounds for at least two years to qualify for an affordable tier of insurance. I'm a CAD draftsman. And I have six children, so exercise is very difficult to fit into my schedule. He goes on to say, I ate a six-ounce sirloin steak with two cups of buttered broccoli and gained over a pound. Ooh. A cup of guacamole adds weight. I haven't crossed 15 grams of carbs in a month, so I'm confident that my insulin remains low. Please consider a podcast episode that addresses my mistake and how others may avoid it. I'd be happy to share my meal tracking and weight history if it helps. Thank you for everything you've done for our community, gentlemen. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm. So, uh, Carl, you had a comment to this one. Yeah, that's right. I wrote him back and said, hey, Dwayne, first of all, congratulations. Well done. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about gaining weight at this stage of your journey. Your body obviously wants to have a bit more paunch than you're happy with. <laughs> By reducing calories, you're turning down the thermostat on how much energy your body will expend over a day. If you eat one meal a day, make it count. You will find, I think, that your weight will stabilize. And you'll be happy with the food you're eating at the same time. The body's pretty smart. Anyway, that's my two cents. Maybe Richard has some better ideas. Yeah, I uh, think that the simplest explanation that fits the facts is that in the process of imposing a caloric deficit to force his body to draw down stored energy, he also slowed his metabolic rate. According yeah. to Dr. Finney, within a few weeks of caloric restriction, we can lose 25% of our metabolic rate. Um, the problem is, as soon as you take your foot off the caloric brakes, you gain weight rapidly because your ability to use energy has dropped. Uh, also, your satiety signals are driving you to make up for what your body thinks was a recent energy crisis. 
Uh, and the classic answer that you're going to get from personal trainers is to increase your metabolic rate by building muscle through weight-bearing exercise while slowly releasing your inhibition or on intake. But unfortunately, yeah. it takes a lot of additional muscle to replace 25% of your total metabolic uh, usage rate. Um, and so it's a difficult position to work you, your way out of. Sure. There was a study done by Kevin Hall into Biggest Losers competitors. Um, yep. who lo- they lost weight in the competition, but they had a depressed metabolic rate six years after the competition. Uh, and they all gained back all of the same weight because of the same problem right. that uh, Dwayne has. You know, they, they're, they're no longer able to, uh, to use energy at the rate that they, that they started out with. So, um, hmm. people who, inc- increase their caloric use by dropping insulin and or increasing exercise but remain ad libitum, that is, they're eating to satiety, they lose the weight and they keep it off. So the difficult thing is how does he now get to that point because he's lowered his metabolic rate and I I think you're right that he may need to accept a higher weight initially for his body to accept that it's no longer an energy crisis. So I think he he probably has to eat to satiety for a bit Um, so his body just gets comfortable with the fact that, you know, we're not starving. We can we can we can take uh, uh, all of the constraints off, uh, and yeah, uh, and maybe just to, two or three days or something like that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be very long, and then perhaps a fast right. to uh, yeah to get back down. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fast is you know a short term fast, like a three day fast, is not going to cruel his uh, metabolic rate any further. Right, um, and right. the feet the feast that you have in between fasts is probably going to. Uh, reassure his body that, you know, that it, it is having access to food, that, that, uh, yeah. the food will come along. So it doesn't need to sort of, uh, go into DEFCON 4, so to speak. <laughs> but it's a, diff- yeah. it's, it's a difficult situation. And it's one of the problems that people have when they go on these caloric restrictions is that, um, the, yeah. the body's not a fool and the first law of thermodynamics will not be, uh, mocked that easily. And yeah, that's right. So, so what happens is you you know, if you reduce the calories coming in, um, your body will reduce the calories that it's expending, and it does that by, you know, taking a good uh, uh, machete to the legs of your metabolic rate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So it's that's uh, it's an unfortunate situation, as Richard said. But to really get out of it, you need to eat really, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and in eat uh, high higher fat and low carb, moderate protein ketogenic diet yeah. at least for a few days until yeah. you get your metabolic rate back up. And then you can fast and do intermittent fasting to, 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 to lose that weight again. Yeah, I don't know how, how that he can stay under that 170 uh, in this process. No. I think he may have to accept it going up a little bit, um, and that's, that, that's unfortunate, but that's, that's, you know, that's, it. that's his body is uh, fighting yep. him. Yep. So there you go, Dwayne. Hope that helps. Mm. So that brings us to our guest. On the phone with us right now from somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah, an undisclosed location, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's Dr. Gary Fetke. Hi, Gary. Hi, guys. Good to talk to you again. I think it's good morning and uh, good evening and uh, wherever we all are at the moment. Right. So what are you doing in Wisconsin? I've been invited to um, speak at the uh, CrossFit uh, Games, which uh, finished up uh, yesterday. And uh, they had a health conference, and uh, they invited uh, Professor Tim Noakes and myself to speak at the meeting. And uh, I was given the uh, option of uh, having a pretty well open card of what to speak about. Oh. So I decided to speak about everything. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, stuff that's different from what we talked about in our interview, which 
By the way, we recorded on video and it's now up at gary.2keto.com. I'll leave it at that. So what were you talking about? Uh, literally the central role of nutrition and everything and effectively its role in our health, our education, economics, politics, environment and belief. And really what we've done is uh, over the last couple of years, some of your listeners, and I know you guys know that I've been under the hammer for actually giving nutritional advice in Australia. Right. And, uh, you know, being uh, under the pump with now three uh, notifications to the medical board for recommending that my patients have uh, a real food, which is fresh, local, and seasonal. Mm-hmm. And we've come to realize that it's not about the science. I mean, we can argue that the science until we're blue in the face because it's actually a no-brainer. I I talk about in that talk that uh, our cells, and particularly our mitochondria, um, have no emotions and they uh, can't be affected by lobbyists. And uh, (laughs) uh, uh, they just want to go about their business and get the right fuel in. Right. And... That's, uh, it came to a, you know, a, re- a realization that we're not talking about science and then trying to work out why we in particular have been, uh, uh criticized. And Belinda, uh, whilst watching me, uh, argue the science has been looking at the why and trying to work out why there's something behind it all. And as it turned out, uh, we've come to recognize that we need to look at the origins of our nutritional guidelines, which are actually now vegetarian. And most people don't recognize that, whereas they were based on uh, meat and dairy um, back in the 1940s, very clearly. And over the last uh, several decades, they've moved to being effectively vegetarian. And the US plate now actually can't uh, even mention the word meat on it, just has a quarter of it as protein. Hmm. So I traced the guidelines um, and how they've actually changed over time to be effectively being vegetarian. And then we traced back the origins of the guidelines. As it turns out, uh, the American Dietetic Association uh, was born 100 years ago, uh, only a few hours' drive from where I'm uh, sitting at the moment in a place called Battle Creek. Ah. And there's a few things about Battle Creek, Michigan. They, that was the origins of the uh, uh, Dietitians Associations of the world. Hmm. So the American Dietetics Association was started in 1917, Canada followed in 1935, and the rest of the world followed on from that. Okay. And so everything around the world is actually based on the American Dietetics Association uh, origin. If we follow on f- back from there, the person who started that association was a woman by the name of Lena Cooper. Really? And um, she uh, was a protege and was working for a fellow by the name of uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Sure. Ah, there's a familiar name. And um, so the Kellogg's brothers started uh, Kellogg Cereals in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan. And there were about Mm. 101 uh, cereal companies around about the time of the uh, late uh, 1890s, early 20th century. And uh, so virtually all cereal companies of the world were born in Battle Creek, Michigan. Wow. They, uh, you know, uh, come down in size now, and you've got the big ones of Kellogg's. And in Australia, New Zealand, you've got Sanitarium Health. If you don't mind a quick interruption, where does Ansel Keys fit into all this? Because I know he was very influential. Well, Ansel Keys was really 50 years later. 
okay. uh, as it turns out, uh, in, in that ballpark. And uh, uh, he's another story for another day, really. Yeah, we've talked about him till we're blue in the face anyway. And so most people <laughs> know about him, but we've gone back in history to work out what the guidelines were, and effectively, how did cereal actually become part of the guidelines in the first place? Right. Because in my uh, take on the science of it, it's a non-essential carbohydrate. We can get carbohydrates from our vegetables, we can get a small amount from fruit, comes in our meat, but grains actually snuck in there right at the beginning. And as it turns out, they were, you know, effectively the food industry was right there at the beginning of it. I mean, let's think about our song, America the Beautiful. We have amber waves of grain and fruited plains. Oh, look, we've just been driving uh, uh, across Europe and then uh, and then here around the US and uh, effectively it's just monocultures of soy, uh, uh, cereals and... Uh, and rapeseed. Uh, corn. Yeah, rapeseed and corn. It, it is, it, and uh, we, you know, I actually get out of the car and I kick the dirt around because I'm really looking at the environmental aspect of this and the ground's becoming uh, sterile, it's losing its organic matter, and that's part of the talk as well. Mm. So we, we chased down Lena Cooper a little bit more. So she was there with Kellogg's right at the beginning. She was a protege, worked with the company. She uh, uh, was um, a vegetarian. She was also um, the woman who was the voice of dietetics for the first 30 years, wrote the um, first textbook. And uh, that textbook travelled around the world virtually as the startup of all um, dietetic advice for the world. Wow. Unfortunately, from the world aspect, we've travelled down that cereal and grain-based aspect, and it's turned out to be um, a um, health disaster, an economic disaster. And in my talk, I go through the environmental aspect of it as well. But we yeah. didn't rest there. We we chased that back a bit further and worked out that uh, Lena Cooper was, in fact, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, yeah. Vegetarians. Uh, the, the Kellogg brothers were too, weren't they? The Kellogg's brothers and most of the cereal industry uh, were started up by Seventh-day Adventists, and that's very much their home, uh, home territory around Battle Ooh. Creek hmm. in Michigan. There, um, they were actually, you know, they were born out of the temper, temperance movement. Um, most of their ideology was along that line with, uh, yeah. the concept of, uh, you know, getting away from tobacco and alcohol, doing mm-hmm. a bit of exercise and community, um, uh, living and all of that, uh, right. don't have an issue with it. But their ideas about nutrition were, um, a little bit misplaced. And it would be nice if they were based on science, but unfortunately they were based on the visions of a young woman. And uh, that person was a woman by the name of Ellen G. White. Uh, She started having visions um, uh, around about the age of 17 and continued them on for a long period of time. And she became the... uh, Her writings, and she was quite prolific, uh, became... uh, the ideology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. For nutrition purposes? Well, for a lot of things. Oh. Uh, we go through um, a lot of the health uh, myths that we have at this point in time actually stem from her and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Wow. Uh, they describe uh, themselves as medical evangelists, and that is the right arm of the church and the message. They have an aim uh, to um, promote uh, medical evangelism, the term um, where we think that meat causes disease and particularly where meat causes cancer mm. stem from her visions. Mm. Wow. And it's quite dramatic. I mean, they, they, and they don't hide it. You can go and read through all of her writings and her, 
and uh, there's uh, material about her visions, and it's all well and truly advertised. I actually worked for um, uh, some people who were in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and were doing a medical startup in California near Loma Linda. And uh, I found them to be very intelligent, extremely compassionate, and passionate people. Um, I didn't agree with the, the vegetarianism, of course, because, you know, I eat meat. I like it. But uh, <laughs> And they had, they had tolerance for me, and, and I did them in, in terms of nutrition. It's all of our research uh, points to the fact that they're very welcoming, um, but they're going to definitely sway you around to vegetarianism. The whole concept of cereals and grains uh, was another one of her um, uh, ideologies. And the Seventh-day Adventist uh, Church adopted that over a long period of time. She also had another vision, which was an interesting one, uh, in that she, uh, part of the medical evangelism and promoting it worldwide, was that she uh, felt that they needed to go that pathway. And when her father asked her about the vision, uh, which countries did you um, see, she said, the angel told me Australia. Right. Uh, So um, 16 years later, about 1890, uh, she travelled to uh, Australia with uh, the elder stepbrother of the Kellogg's brothers, Merritt. And Merritt Mm -hmm. and she started up Sanitary and Health and Wellbeing food company in Australia. No kidding. And the um, Sydney Adventist Church and Avondale College. Uh, The difference was that uh, they took the model of serial um, uh, commercialization and they kept it under the umbrella of the church. So Kellogg's in the US is a publicly owned company, whereas Sanitarium is a church-owned one and and, um, doesn't pay any taxes and they uh, promote uh, vegetarianism, and uh, they do a lot of medical evangelism when you start searching through the messages of the sanitarium food company. I'm a bit compromised you know, by the fact that they also sell stuff like Up and Go, which is heavily sugar-laden. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a bit of hypocrisy there within the company, but nonetheless they are one of Australia and New Zealand's most respected companies, um, and trusted uh, Along that way, but they are they're making a lot of money, and they are putting it straight back into health promotion. Yeah, I know in in Australia, if you want to get a lipid subfraction analysis, you're going to get it from Sydney Adventist <laughs> Hospital. Well, that's the most likely spot. That's not the only spot, but I've, I've got to admit, I've been recommending people go and getting their lipid subfraction analysis yeah. through that institution. So, I mean, they're, they're doing some good stuff, but the trouble is. I have a problem with their basic uh, message is that it's medical evangelism and it's vegetarianism. Oh, totally. Right. And, uh, you know, part of that, uh, you know, we chased that path because of the expert witness against me. Um, it was a professor, Mark Walquist, and he, uh, uh, his textbook is effectively a textbook of vegetarianism. Uh, it's a textbook that sanitarium promotes. Uh, he failed to declare that conflict of interest and he has an ongoing association with the Dietitians Association of Australia. I see. Um, it's also been associated with um, uh, similar uh, witnesses that were against Professor Tim Noakes and myself. So I mean, that's, part, that's partly where our journey started. Wow. Um, so we, you know, we've gone forward and uh, in that talk I then look at uh, some of the myths about vegetarianism, particularly the longevity aspect um, and the overall health as- aspects, all of which have been promoted very much by the Adventist studies. 
And what were those studies, and how how could they be inaccurate? Well, if you've got a population of people that uh, uh, study themselves, uh, research themselves, and publish in their own journals and cross-reference off each other, then you've got some, some something called internal bias. Mm. In the right. 1950s, I tracked down a fellow by the name of um, uh, Dr. Miller, who actually came back from China. He, he, he effectively brought back uh, the whole soy and soybean and soy milk industry uh, to the United States. He had a vested interest in that, and so did the church. Um, but he also came back with an aim to prove the visions of Ellen G. White. That was back in 1953, set up a science and uh, a nutrition laboratory uh, with the aim to do that. First study that came out of the Adventist uh, group was in 1958, so the timing's quite interesting. Wow. Yeah. And they've got 1,200 articles now that they've published out of themselves. Um, and so they, by sheer weight of numbers, they, they sway the literature there. Yeah, I guess so. When I started looking at other groups that looked at longevity, I found Mormons that were that came from California on a study that was done by non-Mormons. Um, and I mentioned California because that's where Loma Linda University is, which is what was uh, originally started by the Seventh-day Adventists. Sure. It was originally, I think, the University of um, uh, Evangelical Medicine, something like that. That's not okay. quite right. So they changed it to Loma Linda University. Uh, that that was that was in my neighborhood where I lived, and uh, the software company that uh, I worked for was um, headed by a neurosurgeon who was at one time the dean of the university. So, like I said, I was sort of embedded and thrown into that culture uh, work-wise, and uh, like I said, found them to be super nice people, um, and you know, did go over to dinner and did eat the vegetarian stuff, a uh, lot of calories, but but no meat. And um, and but I I wasn't vegetarian while I was there, of course. I look, I think I keep coming back to the fact that they're well intentioned. Yeah, um, sure. Got it wrong, and uh, yeah. and I'm not. This is never not about having a go at the church. It's looking at the origins of our nutritional guidelines. No, I which totally agree. Place around the world, and I actually think you know we need to rip out uh, that whole. Um, generational education that our nutritional guidelines are right around the world. And so every dietetic association that's advising every diet uh, guideline for every government in the world yeah. has a flawed beginning. Agreed. And that beginning was based on vegetarianism and uh, with uh, involvement from the cereal uh, processed food industry. And so that you know, the foundations are rotten to the core. Mm-hmm. And so every time... But, you know... You know, poor old dietitians, they've been told the same thing over and over and over. And they've come yeah. to believe it. It's just not based on science. It's based on the visions of a young woman. Wow. Um, and so you know, we've moved on from there and we look to see where uh, the Seventh-day Adventists um, have taken their message and to promote vegetarianism. And right. uh, that, that, that in itself is really interesting because they... Uh, they're pacifists. They uh, they've involved themselves primarily in medical evangelism mm. in, and education. You mentioned medical evangelism a couple of times. What can you define that? Or is it just? Uh, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around that term. Yeah, look, essentially, it is, it's a promotion of health. That sounds great in itself, but the promotion of health is um, to move everyone across towards a vegetarian lifestyle. I see. And and that uh, has been associated with a lot of money and a lot of propaganda. 
And we see more and more the, uh, the rise and rise of vegetarian uh, concepts in the media nowadays. Hmm. Um, you know, to take it back, um, the, the very first people to put um, product placements into uh, society were the cereal companies with all the uh, cartoons with the Flintstones, oh, Huckleberry yeah. Hound. Yeah. Uh, they were the... Um, uh, they also um, prom- uh, promoted um, a fellow by the name of Walt Disney right at the beginning and gave him uh, some seed money. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, they were very early adopters of um, radio shows and uh, medical advice, and they were early um, uh, adopters of uh, cooking shows. So they've been right there from the beginning. And if you start looking back, you can see it's, it's, you know, it's plain as day. And if wow. you want to control the education of the people, if you want to control the propaganda and the ideology, then you need to control the education and then you need to control the media. So we've looked at their, where they are now, and again, it's all part of the public record. The 2016 report um, shows that um, there's about 80-odd uh, thousand uh, churches around the world, in virtually all countries of the world, um, unbelievable penetration. They uh, promote their message in over 900 languages. Uh, they're only a small church, but a rapidly growing one. is about 20 million. But their big strength is in controlling the media. Uh, they yeah. own um, 62 publishing houses. They've got 25,000 evangelists. But then we've started looking at the ed- education. Uh, you and the, uh, the crew may be surprised to know that they are the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Church. Whoa. Wow. And they've only been going 150 years since 1863. You want to hear some irony, Gary? Uh, In my neighborhood, and Richard knows because he was here just a couple weeks ago, uh, if you drive up the hill toward New London from my house, you pass uh, a piggery on one side of the road, a pig farm, and on the other side of the road, a Seventh-day Adventist church. And they're like right across the street from each other. And I never found that ironic until just now. Okay. Well, it's called tolerance. It's fine. <laughs> both ways. Yeah. Um, so they own over 8,000 educational facilities, over 5,000 primary schools. I think the figure's um, uh, 2,700 secondary schools. Yeah. Uh, 115, I think, tertiary education uh, units. Wow. So they're educating our children, you know, right from product placement uh, uh, through to our schooling. So our, 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 we and we and we were all, you know, I, I was raised on cereal, watched the Flintstones, and yeah, sure, me too. And uh, you know, we've all seen Mickey Mouse and all that sort of thing. It's been going for a long time. Um, so then uh, we looked at the other aspects of media. Uh, they own eight hundred and eighty odd radio stations around the world, four hundred and forty-one television stations. Huh. Uh, and um, they've got a massive internet uh, aspect. Uh, you guys will be impressed with this. In 2015, they did over 70,000 podcasts. What? Wow. One point, over 1.1 billion downloads. Holy crap. Now, my problem with all of that <laughs> is is they don't, haven't declared their conflict of interest. Okay, something comes down to that. So, you know, no one's declaring their, that they're vegetarians. They're not declaring that they're Seventh-day Adventists. Um, uh, you know, they you know, go back to the science and, and you know, the, the published material, a lot of it's published by themselves, and you keep spreading the message. And 
But you just don't tell everyone that you're from the Seventh-day Adventist Church and that you're vegetarian and are actually promoting vegetarianism. They just talk about the benefits of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, then, um, again, through their um, annual report, uh, they are very well-funded. They have had $3.4 billion of um, US dollars in donations. Um, they don't talk about... Uh, um, how much profit they're making from food industries. They own 22 food industries. I'm not talking to 22 companies. They own 22 food industries around the world. They produce wow. 3,700 food products. I won't call it food because it's it's you know, processed food. Wow. Multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, they return a bit of it. They're one of the biggest uh, foreign aid um, groups in the world, but you know they... But that's only um, in the big picture, 186 million dollars. I'm not saying that you know it's no um, no short change, but there's an enormous amount of money sitting there to continue the message of the church, which is to promote vegetarianism. I see. And so, where are they now? Um, and they're in the World Health Organization. They've got some um, uh, links, and they're doing some what they they, they describe in their own terms, unique uh, projects. And we're really. And the big thing I'd like everyone to start looking out for is a thing called lifestyle medicine. Uh, that term has uh, cropped up uh, very regularly now, just in the last few years. Huh. Uh, and if you start looking, and in the talk I go through the multiple names and slight changes of names, uh, Lifestyle Medicine Institute, uh, Lifestyle Medicine Alliance. And- Isn't that something Dean Ornish was involved with as well? Uh, he uh, has um, his own, he's got this Ornish Lifestyle Medicine Group. Um, mm. And when you start looking at names, and I'm still in the US, so I'm not going to mention too many names until I leave the country, mm. um, in that the same names crop up uh, all over the place. And uh, when you hear people uh, detract uh, against uh, paleo or against uh, meat, uh, and there are some very vocal voices there uh, that are tied up with animal rights groups, that yeah. are tied up with vegan groups, uh, and are tied up with all this propaganda. The same names are cropping up there as founders of this. The similar names that were associated with the Global Health uh, Obesity um, uh, Group, uh, which was all tied up with Ilse and tied up with Coca-Cola. Um, yeah, energy balance, yeah. Energy balance. Uh, look, there are... Every day we uncover another layer of this web. Now, I'm not trying to be too conspiratorial. I'm just stating it that they are tied up together. Yeah. They are promoting vegetarianism. And not hiding it either. It's well, not if you've already got to search a little bit, but the Sanitarium Health and Wellbeing website actually says that they started up uh, Lifestyle. They own Lifestyle Medicine Institute. It's there on yep. their webpage, and um, uh, I was able to uh, search uh, through uh, the LinkedIn profile some of their senior staff, and you know they openly admit to saying that they uh, started up Lifestyle Medicine, uh, or they you know they brought it on board. Um, they instituted the Chip Health program into uh, into Australia, and it's all exactly the same thing. That Chip Health is a you know, major player now in the US. Uh, insurance industry, and it's again promoting vegetarianism. Right. And I don't, again, I don't have a problem with someone having uh, a belief 
but I do have a problem when you don't declare your conflict of interest. I do have a problem when that ideology, uh, based on the visions of a young woman 150 years ago, right. and now public health policy, and as it turns out, we are uh, three-quarters of us are insulin-resistant, and we've got obesity and diabetes and health problems which are totally out of control. So I'm just I'm calling out the world, and, and particularly the dietitians and the dietetics associations of the world, in that their origins were flawed. Um, uh, they haven't been arguing the science. They've been uh, based on material supplied to them effectively from the cereal industry right from word go. You know, how on earth did cereal get into the, the food guidelines? Why is cereal the sacred cow that can never be challenged? So you got me thinking here, Gary, that, you know, we, we tend to think of grains as vegetables, but they're not. It, they're just a cheap source of calories. And that has sort of come into our thinking in the past hundred years or so. And then, uh, the other, the other aspect that you've got me thinking about is that, uh, when Miller came back from China with soy, it was really an attempt to, to paper over the cracks in the vegan uh, diet that was low in protein. And so soy was this great, you know, soy and tofu was this great benefactor to the vegan lifestyle in that it provided adequate uh, protein for those diets. And, and the other thing is the iron supplementation of grains. I mean, this is, again, is a, an sure. attempt to try and sort of uh, try and make up for the lacking in a vegan diet uh, that you would get if you were eating meat. So it, it, it's incredible. It all, it really does start to make sense. And, you know, when we were kids, the cereal commercials, they would all say fortified, you know, they're fortified with vitamins and minerals. That means vitamins and minerals are added because they're missing in the grain by itself. This is exactly what I want you guys to be saying, that it's got you thinking. We've got you know, a truckload of stuff with us in our heads um, you know, because this is a you know, we've got uh, hard drives in three uh, three continents of the world now. We are trying to actually get everyone thinking because the only way out of this enormous mess that we have on the planet uh, is to um, uh, well, I, in my talk I actually say if, if this was a computer, there's so many things wrong with it. I'd be pressing Control or Delete and doing a reboot. <laughs> Getting rid of you know all the uh, compromised software because right. we are totally in strife and there's only one way out of it and that's public awareness. Gary, one thing that occurs to me is, all right, let's say the listeners, we get it, we do the research or we take your word for it and we understand where all this has come from. And economic incentives have been aligned like dominoes based on this fundamental food and all the money that it brings in and all the people invested in it and their careers and now medical professionals and pharmaceuticals and complete industries of producing insulin and all of this stuff. And it goes on and on and on. If this economy falls like a house of cards, how can it be rebuilt? And the, the thing that becomes obvious to me is, you know, grains can be raised or farms can be can be raising grass for animals and we just turn more from a grain-based economy to an animal based economy there are always going to be vegetarians there are always going to be vegans and that that's true but for for and for those people we're talking about growing more avocados and rich nuts and things like that but do you see that happening? Do you see the entire grain industry sort of 
moving into a uh, a low carbohydrate s- way of supporting itself? Oh, I think that it will be for those that choose it and can understand it. Uh, if we t- start talking about the social issues, and you, I think we had a, we touched on this in Breckenridge when I caught up with you guys, and you know this is big picture stuff, and it, you know, it's almost incomprehensible. Um, in the talk, I talk about the environment uh, because um, we've lost organic matter in our soil, yeah. and when you lose organic matter in your soil, you can't retain water. You know that under a well-mulched garden, the, the soil's moist, the bugs are there, the bacteria turning it over, the mulch, you know, yeah. it's, it's rich. Yeah. And our soil is now sterile. Uh, it's treated with chemicals. It dries out. It's the, the greatest export of the world at this point in time by volume is topsoil. Mm. You know, water tables are dropping down. The only thing which effectively restores organic matter to the soil is a thing called cow manure. <laughs> uh, you know, the ruminants rule. Is that what and we've got about. plenty of BS in this country to go around. Let me <laughs> tell you. We can spread that around. <laughs> So there was an interesting presentation by Peter Ballastead at Breckenridge. He's the, the ruminati, the guy who yeah. spoke for and on behalf of ruminants. He made the case that most of the world's uh, arable land is only good for growing grasses. It's actually not good for growing vegetables and other plants. So either you grow grasses like sugar and wheat or you, uh, you know, for, for, for humans and make them sick, or you feed them into animals who are going to, as you say, um, put manure back into the soil and, um, and uh, increase the topsoil. I've got, I've got an enormous amount of time for Peter Bellis that uh, we can catch up with each other, and I've got a couple of his slides in my talk. Uh, and, you know, to, to, you know, we're told by the propaganda that 90% of grain goes towards feeding animals uh, for, for us. Uh, as it turns out, two thirds of the uh, grain production of the world actually goes for human consumption. Mm. Um, of the one third that goes towards animal feed, uh, mostly to poultry, uh, then to pigs, and only twenty percent of it goes to the ruminants, which are the mm. cows and the goats. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I, I crunched through those numbers a little bit. Only four percent of the world's surface is actually arable land, so we don't actually have much. The World Bank actually puts that figure down, maybe only three point five percent. What wow. we do have is about 16% of the surface of the planet is uh, rangeland and forests, we, which we can start to farm animals that can restore our topsoil. So I, I think we need to see a shift as a, at a planetary level towards looking after our soil because it's at a crisis point now. We've lost 80% of our organic matter in the last 100 years mm. and 30% in just the last 10. Wow. So we, we need to... You know, it, it, it's at a crisis point. We're producing food for quantity rather than quality, and we've been doing that for too long. Right. And uh, the nutrients of our food is going down. So I, I have a real struggle. If you actually, even if you understand what I talk, low carb, healthy fat, and you want to eat fresh, local, and seasonal food, it's actually even hard to get the nutrients in it that was there 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, what can we do at a local level? You can do that in your own backyard. You can start. Um, what can we do at a community level to raise the awareness? What can we do at a national level? Well, you know, first of all, call out the dietary guidelines. And uh, what can we yeah. then do at an international level? We'll call out the dietary guidelines again. And uh, the consumers will determine where the market shifts. And we've seen that now. You can see it with farmers' markets. We can see it right. on the shelves of the supermarket. There's going to, I predict, be a increased demand 
for quality meats and eggs as you know word spreads about this and and as the economy shifts and grows that uh, I, I know in my own journey, I started out uh, thinking that I was spending a lot more money on food, and I was, and I was spending a lot more money on kitchen gadgets and and uh, things I thought I needed, and then gradually that grocery bill became a quarter of what it was before, and my trash output became a quarter of what it was before, and so there is there is right there evidence that you know you're not only saving money on food. But you're sa- you're saving the planet when you when you adopt a LCHF lifestyle. But now there's been a demand from me anyway in purchasing more grass-fed beef and more you know uh, organic free-range eggs and, and higher quality oils and butters and that kind of thing. So I I foresee a demand rising. I think there's already a uh, an increase in demand for butter worldwide, isn't there? Absolutely, particularly. I mean, I know Andreas Onfeld. You know, speaks about the figures out of Sweden, uh, and um, I mean, I can only look at my supermarket shelves. I haven't chased that one down. I don't have enough time to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to just backtrack one bit um, because it's one of the propaganda things. Uh, I am an animal rights activist, and I, I am not into feedlot, um, you know, production for meat and sure. using grain from, you know, from cropping to actually do that. But I think we've got to talk about, uh, again, in the talk about the, the number of living creatures which are affected by uh, our tilling and uh, the loss of organic matter. So, you know, if there's about 7 billion people on the planet and there's about 7 billion living creatures in a tablespoon of soil. Mm. So we're, we're affecting their environment. And, you know, it's not just about big brown-eyed cows. Right. So, you know, the big picture stuff is we need, we need to look after our, you know, our, all living creatures on the planet. But if you, if you're alive on this planet, you are affecting living creatures around you, whether or not you're, you uh, you know, eating meat or not eating meat. And so, you know, let's, let's, again, get unemotional about it, uh, and, uh, and, and look at it in the, you know, in the, the overall big picture stuff. Well, you know, I, I don't want to see this, um, you know, me, raising this issue as a takedown of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I just want, when everyone comes to the table, that you identify yourself, you tell me what hat you're wearing, and particularly when we're having this debate. Um, and uh, you know, I know that someone you know, Twitter was saying, well, let's, you know, the Jews and the Catholics need to be de- defining themselves. Well, most times they do. Okay, well, you're Jewish, that's fine. Um, you know, you're going to avoid pork, and that's fine. I respect that. Uh, if on uh, Catholicism, you're going to be having, um, you know, fish on Fridays, and and uh, sure. I respect Lent, and I respect Ramadan, and I respect all that. But, but you know, that's well and truly defined. What I have an issue with is the vegetarian community. Uh, and particularly with their research and their medical evangelism and the media and the, the, the background that's going on and the education, you know, as the second biggest educator of the world, mm. uh, is not declaring their conflict of interest. Yeah. And that's where the issue is because that becomes this generational education. People will keep defending that paradigm because their teachers were taught that. And they just keep believing. My teachers can't be wrong. My textbooks can't be wrong. Yeah. But if the one group's actually been writing the textbooks and doing the education for a hundred years, then that all of a sudden explains a lot of things. And um, I caught up. Uh, you know, we had a bit of counsel, Belinda and myself, with some friends before I'd just given this talk. Um, 
and uh, who are players in this field, we caught up with them uh, in Europe. That was part of our travels before coming here, just to discuss it with them to you know see what they thought. And it was really a face slap moment for them. They actually went, "Oh my goodness, yeah. that explains that. That explains that. That explains that." But more importantly, going forward, you know, if people are involved with um, lifestyle medicine, uh, True Health Initiative, uh, Glimmer Group, the CHIP programs, all those things, they may not even know that they're actually involved in this process. Right. And so that's what we're finding. Uh, people are going, oh, crikey, I actually gave a presentation at that lifestyle <laughs> medicine conference, um, concept. And then, you know, quite a few of them have come back to us and said, actually, I gave that. I, Gosh, it was like a church. I didn't realize that it was only vegetarian food that was served and they were promoting vegetarianism. Yeah. And that's fine, but, you know, declare that conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Gary, it's been eye-opening un- to an unbelievable degree, and it it's always a pleasure to talk to you, so thank you. Look, thanks, guys. Look, um, we've uh, started a new website to um, really defend this just in case uh, uh, we've upset too many people and they want to knock us off. Okay. Uh, and it's quite serious, you know, people uh, a couple of hundred years ago were burnt at the stake for raising any criticism against the church. Yeah. And sure. um, we've um, uh, started a, a new website called uh, isupportgary.com. Excellent. Which uh, okay. has a, a copy of my uh, talk on it at the moment. We're still waiting for the, the, the official one to be come, downloaded from uh, CrossFit um, uh because with the formal audio and all the video, but at least the talk is there with um, with the presentation, so people can have a look at it. We've got some cross references on it. One of the things that uh, my talk, everything that I've stated is referenced, and that's all on the slides. So when people say, "Oh, he's making it up," I'm not. It's all there. Uh, Great. And there's, and it's just really the tip of the iceberg. I, I really implore you guys, everyone. Uh, look into it further. Uh, there's a lot out there, and um, once you've once you start looking, you'll start finding it. So again, thanks for your support, guys. Thank you, Gary. You're a true hero. I, I wouldn't go that far. We just um, I'm just stubborn and I've stood my ground on this issue. <laughs> All right. Good on you. Thanks, thanks mate. And before we get on with the rest of the show, I just want to uh, point out that Music to Code By is still going strong amongst people who need to focus. And this is music that I designed to promote a sense of flow, and focusing on a task at hand. They're 25-minute pieces of music based on science that are neither boring nor distracting with a beats per minute and repetition that has shown to promote focus. And I have thousands of happy customers. Hopefully, you'll be one too. Go to musictocodeby.net. Actually, I must say I'm one of your happy customers because I use Music to Code By in my ears when I'm coding. Yeah, I I use it when I need to go to sleep or when I just need to uh, shut out the world. It's it's like magical stuff. And speaking of magical stuff, oh my God, Gary Fetke blows our mind again. He just he everyone expected him to zig, and he totally zagged. That was just awesome. Everybody was expecting a, a, a a presentation on no fructose, and they got basically an entire precis of exactly where we got our dietary mistakes from yeah well that made me hungry so i think it's time for (laughs) (laughs) well while you're recuperating i'm gonna go first because mine is so easy it's almost a cop-out it's so easy
but I'm going to tell you how to make quick aioli. What's aioli? It's like a garlicky mayo. Now, when Richard was here, I remember once we had some uh, Fox Hill Kitchens bread, which you can get at bread.2keto.com, by the way, some bagels, and I had made some chicken salad, and I basically made this really intense mayo. So I, I took mayo, a shot of Dijon mustard, some salt and pepper, and some garlic powder. It wasn't even crushed garlic. It was just garlic powder. And just mixed it all up and slathered that on the bread. And it just pops. It just tastes <laughs> so good with that chicken salad and bacon and smoked gouda that we had made. Um, and now I can't stop using this in place of regular mayo. Like anytime I want a sandwich or something or want something with mayonnaise in it, I just mix up a little bit of this aioli. It's just half a cup of mayonnaise, a tablespoon of Dijon mustard, salt and pepper to taste, and maybe a teaspoon of garlic powder, and just mix it all up. And uh, wow, awesome. Nice. That's all I got, man. That's all I got today. Uh, we actually had fun when we were in New London making mayonnaise. We yeah, had we several did. attempts because it gets very close. And you know the frustrating thing? When we got home, Julie said, oh, I'm going to make some mayonnaise. And she just started the gadget up, started pouring in the in the oil, perfect mayonnaise, sitting uh, up. It was like solid as. And I'm like, you're showing off now, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> we tried three times and we got it to a point where it we was did. really great and then it just turned to liquid. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to get it to do that. But anyway. I guess you have to have the right magic bullet or something. We didn't really that have helps. a good one. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the right mix master or whatever. All right. What you got, buddy? So, my recipe, guess what? I'm going to do pulled beef again. No way. <laughs> yes, way. <laughs> I'm going to do this recipe that I've, I did during, at Keto Fest during the cooking demo. I did uh, pulled beef six ways. And today I'm going to do a Mexican taco style beef. Awesome. To make the beef, it's the same recipe uh, as I've done in the past three podcasts. Uh, I start <laughs> off with a four-kilogram bolar blade roast or uh, maybe two chuck roasts. They're normally about three pounds each, so maybe three chuck roasts. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put it in a slow cooker. I'm going to put a little bit of uh, uh, liquid in the bottom of it. It could be stock. It could be water. It could be whey left o- over after making cheese. Uh, I'm going to add a couple of bay leaves and a sprig of thyme and I'm going to cook it for about 12 hours. You want to get it to the point where the beef is just falling apart, and there will be a lot of cooking liquid, and that's totally normal. It's going to look mm. like soup with some beef down the bottom. Yeah. Just keep checking it sort of um, after about six hours, go in every hour and just check to see how it's going. Uh, but for me, for Keto Fest, it took me about 12 hours to get, to get it to the perfect consistency. And then you just get a fork and you start – pulling apart all of the fibres. And the cool thing is those fibres then soak up all of that liquid and so the liquid just disappears into the meat. It's kind of like a pot roast at that point, right? It, it, I guess it kind of is. I portion it into 200-gram bags for two servings, two uh, plates full per bag, mm-hmm. and then I freeze them. And uh, now this is unseasoned, so um, you're going to have to add salt to taste when, when you cook this meat. So let's say you want to make some taco seasoned pulled beef. I'm going to go to the freezer. I'm going to pull out one of these bags of beef and I'm going to chuck it in the microwave for a minute to thaw. And I make sure I crack open the seal of the Ziploc bag so I don't have exploding Ziplocs in my microwave. (laughs) 
So I'm going to chuck a pan on the range and I'm going to get it hot and I'm going to roast some seeds in it. I'm going to roast a teaspoon of cumin seed and a teaspoon of coriander seed Ooh. and a teaspoon of Mexican chilli powder. Yeah. Those three together plus a little salt and pepper is really what taco seasoning is all about. Mm-hmm. When you go buy taco seasoning in the in the store, however, you're going to get a whole lot of fillers in there. You're going to get yeah. uh, starches like uh, corn flour and and yeah. rice starch, and that's just designed to make sure that when that package gets to you, it's still in a powder form and hasn't clumped. But when you make taco seasoning from scratch, it's just uh, two seeds and chili powder. Yeah. Now I want to roast the seeds until they've started to crack. They'll make it start to make a cracking sound, and you'll get a start to get a smell of the seeds, and they're basically mellowing and developing their flavour. So as soon as they've cracked, I then add the seeds to a magic bullet blender. That's one of these little mini blenders with the chili powder, and I blend it to make the taco spice mix. I usually add a little garlic too. You could add garlic salt or you could add fresh garlic as well, yes. Um, So the next step is that I'm going to start cooking the meat. Now, the pan has got uh, these spices, the residue of the spices left over anyway. So I'm just going to chuck the thawed meat into the pan. I'm going to add a little bit of water, maybe half a cup of water and uh, a little bit of ghee maybe just to uh, like a a, – teaspoon of ghee or butter yeah. uh, just to give it some oil to, 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 to get going. Chuck the meat in. Now, the meat's going to have a lot of liquid, and so you're going to generate a lot of steam. And uh, I'll also add in the the the, the pureed powder, uh, chilli powder that I've made, um, and I'm going to cook it for about two minutes and, th- and while, while mixing it well, and that blends the meat and the spice flavours. And what we're doing is we're taking – a meat flavour that has been developed over 12 hours and we're adding to it a spice flavour that's just been invented in the last minute and the two are going to combine into something that feels like it's been cooking for six hours. So it's a remarkable piece of magic. So uh, once you've cooked it and you've blend, blended these flavours, salt to, to taste, take the pan off the heat and I swirl through some sour cream, but you can also just serve it with a dollop of uh, sour cream, some guacamole, grated yeah. cheese, serve it in a lettuce cup or serve it on one of uh, one of Brenda's uh, pork rind waffles and you've got yourself uh, a very interesting uh, taco meat. And it, it takes probably about uh, five or six minutes to make. Absolutely. Easy. So that's my recipe. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a show, Richard. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting that swag for free, join the 2Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, make a pledge to our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com 
or just go to donate.tukido.com. And you can also see our podcast and other videos, like Gary Fetke's interview, yeah. on YouTube at youtube.tukido.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a great review on iTunes. Tukido Dudes is brought to you by Tukido LLC and produced by Prop Productions. Brandon Wen was the engineer. Prop provides audio, video, and podcast production services, and we've been doing that since 2002. Online at pwop.com. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Kyle. All right, and we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.